God does two gigantic things that are shaping and preparing uh, for the rest of the days. As we've been talking about with each day of creation, that each day is building upon the next. Each day is preparing for the next. And to be honest, there's quite the picture for even our own life, isn't it? Today is preparing for tomorrow. Tomorrow is preparing for the next day. And, but ultimately, every day is preparing for the eternal day. What we do today counts for forever. What we do today is for the eternal things. We must not think that, um, that the things that we do, whether it's work, whether it's uh, rest, wh- whatever it might be, that it is not for God's glory and that it is not for the eternal things. Everything should have an eternal weight and focus in our minds. And now with the Lord here, as He's creating, He's showing His power, He's showing His preeminence and His, his providence over all of creation. And what He's been doing is taking something that is formless and void that He has spoken into existence, and now He's beginning to form it, prepare it, and, and beginning to uh, prepare to fill it with life. And so we're about to get to the point where the first parts of, of life are about to enter in and to burst forth onto the scene. And we've noticed here that as you read the account of Genesis, notice this is not a story. This is the Bible account of what the Lord has done. Uh, we know this because it, it, it decrees it, it declares it. There are evidences all around. If you have eyes and ears and you can feel and see creation and you have a heart that beats, you have a conscience within you that points that there is a God in heaven who made the heavens and the earth, who is the one who rules over these things because he created these things. He alone has the authority. So we find that this God is making these things uh, and creating to bring about life, ultimately so that he would redeem a people unto himself. Tonight I want to read verses 9 to 13, and we're just going to work our way through uh, this day number three here. It says, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. This third day brings the first portion of life. We got fruit trees, we got grass, we've got nature starting to develop there. And notice that we never find, as we read Genesis 1, that it says, and God in the matter of two billion years did these things, and then God in the matter of a hundred million years did these things, or we're going to find that God speaks and it is done. And that he says the evening and the morning were the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, because they were literal six creative days where God is working. It is to show forth the patterns of our universe, our laws, how we tell time. It is not because God needs time. He doesn't need a clock or a watch. He's God. He is even outside of time. He can stop the sun and hold it in place for his children to win a battle. He's the same God who can calm the stormy seas. He's the God who uh, rules over his creation. Now, as we find day three, though, there's two key things. And the first thing that we're going to find is, is really there's two acts, two big things that God does in day three. The first one is dividing the waters and the land. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's a big deal. If we look earlier on in this chapter, verse number two tells us, and the earth was without form and void. That means it's literally shapeless, formless. It's not prepared yet for life. It's just kind of there. 
It's like if an artist who forms uh, clay jars or clay pottery, what he has first before him is not this starting point of having a jar already shaped. What has he got? He's got one big old glob of clay, don't he? Right? And then he starts spinning that wheel around and starts shaping it, forming it, and all that stuff. And God is often referred to in the Scripture as uh, the potter, and we are the clay, and this creative work is the clay. But then he says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. There's still no division yet. And then we find in verse 6 on day 2, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. We talked about that last week, how God is literally separating, preparing, and making the atmospheric heavens, the three heavens, if you will, the heaven, the third heaven wherein God dwells, uh, the second heaven, meaning the, the heavenly cosmos, and then uh, the, the expanse of the universe, if you will, and then our own atmosphere. All these things are in preparation uh, for life to be made and to burst forth onto the scene, as God de- declares. Now we come to verse number nine. He says, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so there is a key, two key phrases at the beginning and at the end of the verse. And God said, and it was so when God speaks, it's going to happen. When God says it, it's a done deal. And I love that God uses Moses to include that phrase. So we see God speaks and then it shows us what he spoke. And then, and it was so. That means God makes no mistakes. God is orderly in all that he does. God is uh, working in all these things for a great purpose. And now we find here that this dividing of the waters and the land here. Now there's much debate about how it happened. Was there, um, did, the, the, did he just take the waters and the land and kind of just shift the land up a little bit to where it comes out of the waters or not? We, we don't fully know. And that's a part of the mystery of who God is. I'm thankful that there is mystery yet in the scripture and creation and in the end times to know that only God knows. That's why he's worth trusting. If I knew everything that God knows, then God wouldn't be near as much God as what he is. God is God because God alone knows all these things. But I want to give you some idea and to show us then to to point to the theological big picture about the importance of dividing the water and the land. First of all, one commentator writes about this. The separation of the waters and the preparation of the dry land are to be read in light of the subsequent accounts of the flood in chapter 6 through 9 and the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 to 15. In all three accounts, the waters stand in the way of humankind's habitation of the land. The waters must be removed or pushed aside in order uh, to, for mankind to enjoy God's gift of the land. Just as we learn from the accounts of the flood and the crossing of the Red Sea, the waters are used as God's instrument of judgment on those who disobey him. There is a much greater picture here now when we realize that. When God divides the land and the water, he does so for, for a reason. Anybody in here tonight, you might not want to share, do you got webbed feet? <laughs> Nobody wants to raise their hand? <laughs> All right. Any, any gentleman want to take their collar down and show off your gills? Anybody got gills tonight? No. All right, yeah, a little, maybe that might be a little less embarrassing than the webbed feet. I don't know, but any flippers out there? No? Why is that? Because we have arms and legs and toes and thumbs because we dwell on the land. Now, you might go out in the ocean for a little bit, right? You might go to the beach. You might even go to the lake or somewhere. 
you're either going to do one of a couple things. You're going to go swimming. You're going to go floating, right? And you're going to sit there and bob all around the waves, right? Or you're going to go on a boat. But you're not going to go out there and live there, are you? Why? Because you ain't got the gills and the flippers or the webbed feet. We were made for land, and so we see that there is a division here. Why? Because there is going to be life that dwells and rules over the things of the sea. It's part of the reason why I don't go too far in the ocean. There's bigger things in there than I am. They're scarier, and I don't want to be anybody's bucket of KFC in the ocean, okay? Uh, I'd be a whole family fill-up in the ocean. I don't want to do that. When we think about this, though, in the land, we rule. Adam is made to rule and have dominion over all things in the land. Uh, that, that's why you and I would even say later, you know, today, come, come hunting season, why we, we've got right here, right? It's a part of not just meat eating, but keeping population and keeping a healthy order and balance of nature and the ecosystem. So there's much to be there. If you don't like that, we can, we can talk after. You'll be fine. We'll give you a piece of uh, tenderloin and you'll be okay. But, and we think this, though. He divides the water and the land, and, and to imagine the great feat that this is, you and I, we see the man-made marvels of things like the Hoover Dam. That's a great thing, isn't it? I mean, it's huge. How about this? Right? Just last week, we came in, I had to go get some supplies over in Bluefield. You've got to go through those tunnels. I think about all whoever thought, hey, let's put some dynamite and let's make a tunnel through that thing. Hey, they were pretty smart. Smart enough not just to put dynamite and blow something up and see if we can go through it, but rather to engineer the way it's made and those tunnels to go through. And we, man, man is capable of so much to be able to find a way when there is no way. However, man cannot separate the land and the sea in the way that God does. God speaks and it happens. He doesn't need dynamite. He is the dynamite. His voice is the power. His name is the power. His character is the power. And so these waters are, are covering the earth here and he separates it. And we find here, as this commentator writes, the, this bigger picture. Why does God need to separate? One, because man needs a place to live and to rule and to dwell and to have dominion. But we find this pattern throughout the rest of Scripture, specifically with God's people. We find that God does use water to judge the world, especially early on. Now, you and I, if we see a rainbow, what is that? It's God's promise that he will not send a worldwide flood to destroy or judge the entire human race again. Praise God for that, right? The rainbow doesn't mean anything else. That's what it means, regardless of how it's been hijacked today. The rainbow means God has said, this is who I am. This is who you are. This is what I will not do to you again. However, there will come a judgment again against all mankind. It will not be water. It will be fire. It will be a, a literal fire and brimstone raining down of judgment in a literal tribulation period for a, 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 a period of time where God will judge this world. However, we find the Old Testament in Genesis, just over five chapters in chapter 69, where God takes water and judges the world. God used water to judge the world in Noah's day. And then later on in the Red Sea, as God is having this exodus of his people from the land of Egypt, they are going and he destroys Pharaoh and his army. You can remember there, they get to the Red Sea and the Israelites look at Moses and they say, you brought us out here to die, right? The army's behind us, the water's before us, and we got nowhere to go. But they forgot there's this uh, uh, cloudy, uh, there's this cloud by day that's leading them. It was the Lord God, the Shekinah glory himself, who's leading them in and amongst them and providing, protecting them and leading them to the promised land. And they forget all about it. And God instead opens up and separates the dry land and they walked across dry land. 
there are some today who debate and they say, well, it's supposed to be called the, the, the Reed Sea and it was just a marsh. It was a, an an, you know, ankle deep sort of swamp. Let me ask you this. All right. Now, I know this is in Exodus, not in Genesis. What's more of a miracle to you? A whole army, including Pharaoh and his chariots, drowning in a sea that gets opened up and then brought back down, which is, I mean, hundreds of feet of water, right? And, and the immense pressure that, that is. Or that this miracle that God drowns a whole army in ankle-deep water, chariots and all in a little swamp. Now, that's pretty out there. But that's what modern, many modern theologians, many modern scientists want to say. I'm going, that, I don't even have that much faith. I got the faith that God did this, but to think ankle-deep water, he drowned Pharaoh and the whole army? Kind of crazy. But we see the division of the land and the sea. Uh, God is always preparing as well a land for his people. What is God doing here in Genesis 1 and in the early parts of Genesis 2? He's preparing the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God, where he will place Adam, who he will form from the dust of the ground, and uh, form and fashion him and make him in his image and likeness, and will breathe the breath of life into him. And he will walk and talk with Adam, and he will give him instruction, and Adam will have dominion and will be the one to be the ruler over um, the, the created world and to be the one to keep the order and to keep it perfect and sinless. However, we know what Adam is going to do. He's going to fall short in that. But we find, though, that he's preparing a land for Adam and for his wife and for all of man to, to dwell. What else do we find? That God is preparing a land for his people Israel. They're in the Exodus with the land and the sea being divided. Where is he taking them? He's not just taking them out of Egypt. He's taking them to what they knew as the promised land. How about this, you and I tonight? What is God doing for us? Is he preparing us a land? Absolutely. What did Jesus tell his disciples right before he left the earth and was crucified? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. As a matter of fact, he then goes on to talk about, and we find throughout the rest of Scripture, all the New Testament pointing, there's going to be a day where the Messiah will rule and reign once more on this earth at his second coming. He will establish the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And you and I, as he tells us, in the Sermon on the Mount, that the meek shall inherit the earth, and that we will be there and to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of that land uh, flowing with milk and honey, if you will, for a thousand years. Satan's going to be let loose for a season. There'll be a final judgment. He's going to take all of his enemies, throw them into a lake of fire, and there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and a new city of Jerusalem, this giant city wherein dwelleth righteousness alone. What is that? It's another land for us. That God has a place for us, and that place will be a place where there will be no more curse, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more anything that could possibly be negative again. Instead, we're in His presence. We don't even need uh, the sun, moon, the stars again. Why? Because we have the Lamb of God who is the light unto the city and a river of light that flows from His throne with uh, trees on either side of trees of life that bear fruit. And, and what a place it will be. I can't begin to imagine how beautiful, how wonderful and peaceful it will be. It will be what the Garden of Eden was supposed to have been. And it was for a time until sin comes in. What does sin do? Sin always destroys. Now we find that we find that, that, that man has this land or a sea. And, and all throughout all of human history, you find this natural fear of the unknown and the depths of the seas because we're not meant to, to dwell there. We're not meant to rule over them. We're meant to rule over this earth that God has given. We find, though, then the, the other possibilities of what's taking place here. As God creates and separates the water and the, 
the land. He says, let the dry land appear, and it was so. There's many questions. Was it in the shape that it is today, the earth, with the different continents, the different countries, the different divisions, and the way it is now, uh, with the, you know, giant Australia as a big old island, and you got the North Pole and South Pole and all these different things? Was it like that, or was it one big continent and one big ocean? Uh, I, I tend to think, looking at the, the way that the globe is situated and the way that the world is before the flood, remember the flood is such a catastrophe, that I believe it's very possible that there was a sea, right, right, one ocean, if you will, because if you think about it, we have the Atlantic, Pacific, but somewhere they meet, don't they? But yet they're not the same, right? And so there is one sea, if you will, but there's also multiple seas, as there are multiple bodies of water. Yet, notice this as what Ecclesiastes 1.7 says. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Now, the Bible is not a science textbook. When it speaks about science, it's accurate. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the water cycle. How You ever thought about that? How you follow rivers... They're, you're going to eventually get to some bigger body of water. Normally, you're going to end up in the ocean somewhere. But how come it just doesn't get full, right? If you go home and clog up your sink, and you just keep pouring water in there and let the sink run, you're eventually going to overflow, aren't you? Right? And it's not going to be good. And so we need to take it out, right? But for God, what happens in this earth? Water keeps going in, and yet it doesn't keep, you know, it, it, it keeps recycling and going through. Why? Because only God can do such a thing. God has established these things. Now, modern scientists today often teach, and I was taught this as, as well as, as a, you know, in school, that there was a one landmass, and they called it Pangaea. And the scientists believed that there was one mega continent and one mega ocean. Now, it would make sense, based on looking at a map, at the way that the nations and countries kind of form together. You go, well, how did they break up? Well, if there was just one continent, it would certainly make sense that later on in chapter 6 and 7, when we see the account of the flood, what happens? Literally everything breaks apart. Mountains form, valleys form, uh, things break apart from each other. There's such an uproar and a commotion as God judges the world to fill it full of water. Literally hundreds of feet um, above all the, the mountains, it says, above the peaks. I mean, it is the, it's God who allows Noah and the ark to then land in the mountaintops. So they're at, you don't land in the mountaintops if you start in the bottom with no water, right? It floats on up there. You've got to go an awful lot of water there. So it's certainly possible. But nevertheless, something that was uh, divided similarly to today, but it is difficult to see that without uh, understanding that the whole catastrophe of the flood. But either way, the big picture is this. God separates the land and the seas for a reason. He does so for man's purpose, for his glory, and to show an order in a place of which God is making a beautiful world that he is calling earth. If you look at pictures of Mars, it does not look like ours. It does not look like Earth. How about if you look at Saturn or Jupiter? Does it look the same as Earth? And still no. Right? We are such a special planet, not because we made it special, but because God made it so. Notice we don't find any other place. There's others who say, well, could there be life on other planets and in other galaxies? Eh, maybe, Right? I'm not going to down that hill. You know why? Because we never have an account that God says, I made this planet and this planet and this planet, and I formed life there and did this there. And if anything, I believe we have it so specifically that God does this specifically on earth with mankind for a reason. To show how vast the universe is, to show how vast his glory and power and dominion is, and to show us 
that as small and insignificant of a planet we are in our own solar system, and as small of a planet and insignificant as we are as people in the whole grand scheme of the entire universe that is beyond imagination in its heights and depths, God looks down and knows the hairs on your head. He knows your heart. He knows your motives. He knows how many heartbeats you'll ever have. He knows how many breaths you'll take. He knows your first day to your last day, and he knew it before he even said, and let there be light. And that's who God is. And then we find the other big pictures that God is preparing. Ultimately, this picture of a land for his people, a land for Adam, the first Adam, who is the figurehead, the federal representative of the human race. Of course, he will fall, but there will be a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will make things right, who, where the first brought death and sin, the second brings life and forgiveness of sin. And we find then not only is preparing Adam for land and preparing you and I for land, preparing Israel for land, God is in a preparation place for his people, always preparing for us. And that is where we find the truth that with the separation of the seas and the land, that God is going to judge using water as a foreshadowing later on in the next few chapters, but as well as a pattern throughout the Old Testament as well. It would be a time of judgment of which God will do. But then we find at the end of verse number 10, and God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together the waters called the seas. And God saw that it was good. Now this is the first we see, besides the light in verse number 4, that God said that it was good, it, here he says it once more. Why? We talked about this word good. Good is not just looking back going, well, I guess it's pretty good, or I guess it's all right. It's good as in it, it's meeting the intended purpose, that it is preparing for life. And we're going to see that in the next couple of verses as we go through tonight. But water, the importance of it being good, water provides life. Right? We're, we've talked about this. We're made up of water. We drink water. We're probably supposed to drink more water than what we do, <laughs> right? We use water to do what else? To grow our food, our crops, everything. You take water away and there is no life. You want proof? Look at Mars and the other planets, right? No life, no water, too hot, too cold, too this, too that. And here, it's like the three little bears in some ways. You know? Or is it the three little bears? No, little Red Riding Hood? What, what's that one with the porridge and the, the chair's too big, chair's too small? Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? Little Red Riding which one is it? We're gonna have a <laughs> we're gonna have to have a business meeting over which one that is, but y'all know what I'm talking about, right? The one's too big, the one's too hot, the one's too small, the one's too cold and too lumpy. Goldilocks and the three little bears, that's it. Okay. All right. See? All right, there we go. I get us I'll get us there, right? Hey, y'all 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 ha- y'all get me to to study the Bible, not not those books, I guess. I got a refresh there, I guess. But, but yeah, but here we are in the earth. It's just the right size of seat. It's just the right lump in our porridge and everything else, whatever it is, okay? And so we find it's perfect. It's made for us. And then second, we find that the land provides the place where the Garden of Eden will be. Man will dwell and rule the theocracy of God. We've talked about what the theocracy means. The theocratic kingdom of God is this. The word theocracy means first theo or theos, which is God. And the theocracy part is a rule or a power or a, um, a leading. And so it's the idea of how God is ruling and leading um, over his people, over his creation. 
the first thing and first person that we find rather over in uh, being used in the theocratic kingdom of God is going to be Adam, the first Adam, the federal head of the human race. Then who else do we find afterwards? We find going down through his lineage, we find uh, Cain and Abel, and we find Seth who's going to start the lineage of faith. And then we find uh, going down through uh, uh, Enoch and Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God. And, and, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. A picture of the, the coming, uh, the snatching out of, of God's people before judgment. And then we have Noah, and going all the way through, leading to chapter 12, through the rest of the book of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We find how, in uh, Joseph at the end, how God is ruling and leading his people. Now, who are God's people? God's people are those who trust him by faith. It is the faithful lineage that we find all throughout from Genesis to Revelation. That there are none who can know God or none who can fellowship with God outside of faith. It is through faith that man is saved. It always has been. It always will be. You say, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved by law. They were not saved by keeping it because none could keep it. If anyone was saved by the law, then Moses and Abraham and everyone else would be gone. But guess what? The Bible tells us that uh, for Abraham's salvation, that he believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. That's the same way that we use the word for justification or imputation of righteousness, where uh, we put our trust in Jesus, and what happens? He takes our filth and our unrighteousness and clothes us in his righteousness and declares us righteous. It's our position in him. So for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down through the line, man has always been saved by grace alone through faith alone, and I would say as well in Christ alone. You say, well, Jesus wasn't there in the Old Testament. Well, he's eternal. And secondly, the Old Testament believers, the Old Testament saints, are looking forward to the coming Messiah. How long have they been looking forward to it? Well, as we've talked about, literally from the very first words in Scripture, but even more so, the first message that is ever preached is preached by God, the best preacher that's ever been, of the Word of God, because it's His Word. And then furthermore, He preaches the first message is not moralism, it is not politicism, it is not uh, your own Hey, see, you know, just be sincere in your own way. It is the gospel that he preaches. In Genesis chapter 3, after the very first sin, he says, And I will put enemy between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We find the truth that the gospel is preached from the very first sin. God proclaims that there is a coming Messiah, and that Messiah has come. That is Lord Jesus Christ. We find then that the initial act of day three is good because it repairs for the population of the land and the sea. Now, Act 2, all right? Act 2, it goes through the rest of these verses. In verse 11, it says, And God said, and notice the end of verse 11, and it was so, the importance of that all throughout. God speaks, and it happens. Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Notice God does not say here that I spoke on day three and divided the land and the water and then I planted a bunch of seeds and hoped for the best. Right? God here doesn't plant a seed. God plants the plant that brings the seed. Does that make sense? 
So let me ask you, which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> right? The ch- chicken, right? Where'd the, where'd the chicken come from, an egg? Right? No, see, God declares, hey, let there be chickens. <laughs> and the Baptist said, amen, right? He speaks and it happens. Now, notice the language of this in verse 11. This is what we're going to deal with because this totally, completely refutes any notion that there were millions and billions of years to evolve these things because it don't happen that way. How can plants evolve if there is no sun? Can't. The sun's not there yet. How do I know? We'll go read the rest of the chapter. Sun don't come till the next few verses where it says in, on day four, Right? Let the lights be formed for giving light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night. He made the stars. And God said, let the firmament be of the heaven to give light upon the earth and rule over the day and over the night and divide the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So what in the world's going on here? Science certainly can't explain such a thing, can they? Say what? Yeah. Hey, God already said there was light, right? There's such a, a wonderful mystery here that God does what only God can. God speaks and boom, there's grass. It's not the preparation of grass. He's not waiting for the grass to grow. You and I, we can sit there and watch our grass grow, can't we? God doesn't sit back and watch that happen. Could you imagine how deep the grass would be after millions of billions of years? Don't happen. Why? Because in just two short days, there's going to be a man he's going to create to take care of it, to watch over it. You know, Adam, as we're going to see later on, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but Adam's going to be a farmer. Adam's going to be taking care of the garden of God and to walk with God, to commune with God, to fellowship with God. One commentator writes about this, uh, this issue. He says, uh, at, the com- uh, at the command of God, the earth brought forth green seed yielding herb and fruit bearing fruit trees. These three classes embrace all the production of the vegetable kingdom. The young, tender, green uh, which shoots up after rain and covers the meadows and, dawn, uh, and, and downs, is a generic name for all grasses and cryptogamous plants. With the epithet, yielding of forming seed is used as a generic term for all her- herbaceous plants, corn, vegetables, and other plants by which seed pods are formed. Not only fruit trees, but all trees and shrubs bearing fruit in which there is a seed according to its kind. Plants and animals cannot evolve into existence according to these divine acts of creation. David Guzik writes, Those who proposed these days of creation were not literal days, but successive ages of slow evolutionary development have a real problem here. It is hard to explain how plants and all vegetation could grow and thrive eons before the sun and the moon. No modern evolutionist would argue plant life is older than the sun or the moon, but this is what Genesis, the Genesis record tells us. Right? God makes this, and we talk about what came first, the chicken or the egg. Or, or you, know, you can have those debates all day long, but what has to be there to have an egg? The chicken's got to be there to lay an egg. Right? And we think about this. What's got to be there to reproduce more grass and trees? How do you get more apple trees? If you're starting off and there's no apple tree, what do you got to do? Well, for you and I, we got to plant the tree, don't we? We got to start somewhere. We either start with a sapling, but even that started off as a seed, didn't it? Right? Think of how many apple seeds you done swallowed in, in, in your belly somewhere, right? One day, you, one day when we get buried, there's going to be apple trees and <laughs> everywhere. Right? Watermelon <laughs> patches and all kinds of stuff. You think about this, though. 
It takes that seed to grow up. And what does God do? God, instead of putting a seed and waiting for eons of time, God plants a mature tree. Now, let me ask you this, and this isn't a trick question, all right? When God made Adam, did he make Adam as a baby or as a man? As a man. All right, who votes for man? Who votes for baby? Okay, good. Y'all are on the right track. Now, why does he do such a thing? Because he makes Adam fully formed and fully functioning so that Adam would be able to take care of this garden so that Adam then would be able to have a wife to reproduce, to multiply the same way that he took and said, apple tree, boom. Why? So that apple tree can then be fruitful and multiply after its kind, right? We find, with another commentator writes, we must regard it as one element in the miracle of creation itself, that the word of God, not only tender grasses, but herbs, shrubs, and trees sprang out of the earth, each ripe for the formation of blossom and the bearing of seed and fruit, without the necessity of waiting for years before the vegetation created was ready to blossom and bear fruit. The word kind here is important. The word kind is translated from the Hebrew word uh, min or michn, right? Which has the essential sense of what we would call species. Though genetics are not explicitly noted, they clearly are implied. One species will not and cannot be crossbred. For example, an apple tree cannot be crossbred with a pumpkin plant. Yet somehow you can go to the Walmart and find a false in a candle that's apple pumpkin. <laughs> you can do it with a candle, but you can't do it with the plant, right? An apple tree and a pumpkin, even if they really love each other, will not make an apple pumpkin plant. It does not work, right? We understand how kind works. Why? How about this? You think about this biologically for, on a human scale. It takes a mom and a dad to make a baby. Mom and a mom can't do it. Dad and dad can't do it. Why is that? God starts, you know how we get kind and how we know how they, they make seed and make more apple trees and plants and everything else? It is a picture of what Adam and Eve and all of man and male and female are going to do. They are called to be fruitful and multiply according to God. Why? Because God does things orderly. God is a God of order. God is a, not a God of chaos. God is a God who took the chaos and made order, right? God is the, the one who establishes that there is male and there is female. You talk to those who know a little bit about plants and animals and things like that. You know what they even have to say about plants and animals? That there's male and female. Why is that? Because it takes that to reproduce. This is why it's illogical and unbiological to promote this ideology that two of the same sex are, can make babies. It don't work. If anything, what it does is it goes against the order of God's creative order, God's creative decrees. It is God who establishes male, female. It is God who establishes that this tree that is an apple tree will only make apples, and that that pumpkin plant is only going to bring forth pumpkins. That's it. It won't do anything else. It is what it is. That's why you and I, no matter how hard you try, you will never be a cat or a dog or a cow or a horse. No matter what you do. The same way that a horse or a cow or a cat or a dog could try to be human and still never be a human. Kind is kind. Species is species. I have written down here for my own personal notes an illustration. Um, it, the first thing that came back to my mind when reading about 
the issue of the word kind and species. When I was younger, there was a cartoon called Cat Dog. Um, <laughs> there was, it was a cartoon called Cat Dog. It was one animal, <laughs> but it was two people in one. It was one was dog and cat, and they joined together, and they were called Cat Dog. So it, I don't know why. Now, we know, well, that can happen in the cartoons, can't it? But it can't happen in life, and it's certainly not going to happen in God's creative order. Now, none of y'all probably watch cat dogs. That was mostly for me, but that's what your brain goes to. You got to do what works for you. But notice what the God says after this. God creates mature, fully functioning, fully formed plants so that they can be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because in just two days, what's going to happen? You get day four, day five, and come day six, what happens? There's literal plants and animals and everything coexisting, including dinosaurs roaming around. They're biting off trees. Now, in two days when there's land animals, can something that eats plants eat plants if the plant is just a seed? Nope. Right? Could you imagine that? They're all seeds. The one, one animal gets hungry, decides to eat all the seeds, and there's nothing going to be growing, right? No matter how long it takes, right? It's not going to happen. And that's why God makes it fully formed, fully functioning. He does so because he's about to do that with the rest of the creative order. Then we find this. It says, and it was so, and the earth brought forth grass and uh, herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Why was it good? It would be because these would be the same plants that Adam would be able to walk through the garden and see and observe and to name and to eat. It would be these same plants of which the animals that would wander the garden would be able to, to roam and to scratch their backs against and to eat from. We forget that the garden is not just a place where Adam and Eve and our Sunday school pictures for children are, you know, hiding behind a bush. That's the only thing we see. And there's the one bad tree. We forget it's literally teeming with life everywhere. Because God has taken a place that had no life, that was formless and void, and made it an abundance of life. How come? It shows forth the bigger picture of your and I's spiritual life, doesn't it? Before Christ, we are formless and void. We are in outer darkness. And God says, let there be light. Our eyes and our heart are opened up to the gospel of God, and we're born again and transformed by faith in Christ. And then what happens? He forms and fashions us and gives us a new position. We are called new creatures, new creation in Christ Jesus. We have new appetites. We have a, a new focus. We are new people. We have a land prepared for us, and we see that we go from darkness to light, from death to life, and now we have what Jesus calls an abundant life. Now, that does not mean we have all the cars we want in our garage or whatever cars we do want. It, what it means is that we have an abundant life spiritually. That we literally have all that we need in Christ. We have, if we're thirsty, the water of life, the living water. If we're hungry, we have the bread of life that never goes moldy or maggoty and it never, uh, it never ceases to satisfy our need. But that's who we have. He is our all in all. He is our everything. We also find when God says that it's good, that it pictures though that God provides a lush and productive earth for man, that man's sin will bring about the thorns and the thistles. Where God brings about the fruit trees and the grass and the herbs and everything that is full of life and to be able to give life and preserve life, it points to the dark picture that man is about to mess things all up. 
And there would be some who say, well then, why does God just leave it there and keep it beautiful and why does He make man? Well, you know something? The reason why He does is because He's God. Because rocks and trees and bugs and birds can only give but so much glory to God. Certainly creation speaks that there's a Creator and certainly even as Jesus says that if they don't cry out, then the rocks will cry out. However, the peak point of the creative week is man. Because it's going to be Adam and mankind alone that is, in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, imago Dei. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. It is the peak point because man is going to have an eternal soul. Man is an eternal being. Not the rest of the order. We see here as well, as we bring day three to a close, he says, in the evening and the morning were the third day. How many days have there been? Three. How many hours have there been? 24 times three. Okay, good. I'm glad somebody knew. I was struggling there. 72, right? Three days, that's it. 72 hours, not 72 million years. Not 720 million. Not even 7 billion. God speaks and it was so. We find two things in this. God demonstrates his power. God speaks and creation is simply there. It obeys. God speaks and creation is there and it's in its proper form. He doesn't make Adam into just a little baby and wait for him to grow up. Right? Who's going to take care of him? Right? You think about this. He makes it full and formed, prepared to recreate and populate. Why? Because we were made to create because we're made in God's image. We're creative people, logical, thoughtful, creative in our work, in our art, in the way that we live our life, in the way that we see the world, the same way that God is. But Him to much higher degree than we can even possibly imagine. You and I could try a million different times to come up with creative order and the way that God brought about salvation and never come up to that. Only God does. It shows the difference that while we are made in His image, that there is still such a vast difference between us and Him. The second thing that we find is God's providence. God uses each day, not just to show us that literal day, but to point to a greater purpose and lesson for the reader to not just see what He's doing, but to know who He is. That tonight you can know the God who says, let there be light, let there be a firmament, let there be a division. Let there be fruit and, and, and uh, trees and grass and herbs after its own kind and yielding forth seed. That you cannot just know what God does, but you can know the God that does it. The whole point and purpose of God revealing His creative work is so that we would not worship the creation, but that we would worship and give glory to the Creator. Tonight, as we study and we take our time through this, we understand that we've made it three days so far. We find that each day, God has still been God. God has still been good. That God has been preparing a place for man to dwell with Him. Today is Tuesday. Tomorrow, if the Lord tarries or we're still alive, will be Wednesday. And the next, Thursday, Friday, all the way through. And why do we say that? It's because each day we take our 24 hours and we live our life until we die. And knowing that one day when we do die, we are going to enter into that promised land because it's not here on this current earth. It's coming. There's a coming a day 
where God will speak, it will be so. And it will be more than very good, for it will be perfect as perfect can be, complete and full and final, that you and I can know and worship and fellowship with that God not just now, but one day face to face. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for seeing your power and your your providence and your might throughout the the creative order. And Lord, that you are a God who who does such great things that we cannot even begin to scratch the surface as we dive deep into your word. I thank you for opening up your word tonight, God, that we might know you more, not just know about you, Lord, that we can walk with you and talk with you. And that as small as we are, Lord, that you care for us. Your thoughts are many toward us, that you care about our heart. You care about our condition. You, you care about our soul, Lord, because we're made in your image and, and you desire for us to have fellowship with you. Lord, not that you're lonely, but the fact that we just need you. We can give you glory. We can walk with you and we can see your goodness and your faithfulness. And Lord, you don't need us, but you use us and we thank you for it. I pray, God, that you would keep that in our hearts and our minds as we go from this place, Lord, that you would help us uh, as we go about our week, whether we're working or resting or Whatever it might be, God, that we would keep you on the forefront of our mind and hearts. And Lord, that we would uh, be used by you to go into this lost world and proclaim that there is a God who has made this world and rules this world. And that one day we will stand before him. We will stand before you, Lord. Help our hearts be prepared for that and help our hearts to carry the good news of the gospel upon our lips. Lord, we love you and I thank you for each person that's come here tonight. I pray, God, that you be a blessing to them. And Lord, you would bless them on their journey. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. We'll see you guys Sunday morning. Praying for